Pastor Andrew is out of town this week, so I'm filling in for him here. Uh, it's always wonderful to get to preach God's word, to be in front of you to do this. So um, this week, uh, we're continuing through our F260 Bible reading plan together as a church. And uh, this week, we're going to be going through the book of Jeremiah. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up there, Jeremiah chapter 2. And right now, I feel like saying in this, week, this week's episode of um, how Israel disobeys God, because I feel like every week that's um, what we're going through is uh, we're seeing another way that Israel has disobeyed God and how God is speaking to them through another prophet. Um, we see it time and time again uh, that God's chosen people as a whole. They drift towards sin, they drift towards idolatry, and they drift towards worldliness. So it's in one of those seasons that we see God calling uh, Jeremiah, the prophet, to bring forth his word to his people in regards to their sin um, so Jeremiah 2, there are three points, uh, three simple points that I just want to bring to your attention this morning as we go through this. First, that God remembers. Second, that Israel forgets. And third, the heart of the matter. So we're going to jump straight in. Um, if you have your Bible with you, like I said, Jeremiah 2, and I'm going to start reading at the beginning, verse 1 to verse 13. It says this, the word of the Lord came to me, go and announce directly to Jerusalem that this is what the Lord says. I remember the loyalty of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it found themselves guilty. Disaster came on them. This is the Lord's declaration. Hear the word of the Lord, house of Jacob, and all families of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they went so far from me followed worthless idols, and became worthless themselves. They stopped asking, where is the Lord who brought us from the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through the, a land of deserts and ravines, through a land of drought and darkness, a land no one traveled through and where no one lived? I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruit and bounty, but after you entered, you defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. The priests quit asking, where is the Lord? The experts in the law no longer knew me, and the rulers rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and followed worthless idols. Therefore, I will bring a case against you again. This is the Lord's declaration. I will bring a case against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and take a look. Send someone to Keter and consider carefully. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever exchanged its gods? but they were not gods. Yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. Be appalled at this heavens. Be shocked and utterly desolated. This is the Lord's declaration. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. So my first point, based on um, this section of scripture, is that God remembers. If you jump all the way back to the beginning, uh, at verse 2, uh, Jeremiah, uh, God speaks through Jeremiah and says, I remember the loyalty of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. So what did God remember? What did God remember? God very well could have remembered all of Israel's sin and mistakes up to this point. Um, they're stumbling through the wilderness, their previous idol worship, the mistakes of kings and judges before them. But instead, God remembers the good of his people. He could have looked at their sin and said, once again, here we go, God's people, my people, they're jumping into sin again. But he remembers 
the good. It reminds us that God is forgiving. He does not hold forgiven sin against the Israelites. And at the forefront of his mind was the love that his people had for him in response to his love for them. They had constantly walked away from God. We see it, we've seen it time and time again through our Bible reading series, our, uh, our F260 uh, reading plan. And yet here God is remembering Israel's faithfulness and their love for him, how they were dedicated and holy to the Lord. Um, do you remember how love is described by Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 13? I'm sure you've heard that passage over and over. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. It bears all things. It believes all things. It endures all things. And this is the kind of love that God is exhibiting to Israel, a forgiving love. Um, because they did not deserve to be remembered in this way. And yet God remembered them in this way. Let it remind us about the character of God, that he is love, that he is faithful. Even when we are unlovely, he can look at us and remember the good that there has been in the past. When we can't see, um, we can't see any good in ourselves, and yet he can remember the good of our past and the things that have been there before. And it's astounding that God can be this good. Um, verse three says that Israel was holy to the Lord. Um, what does it mean to be holy? We've talked about that throughout this series as well. Andrew talked about God's holiness just last week. Um, and here is God referring to Israel as holy. What does it mean? It means to be set apart, consecrated, far above what is worldly. And how did, how did Israel become holy? Let's think on this for a second. Why did they love God? Why were they loyal to him in the first place. Um, I want to make sure that we catch what verse 3 is saying here. It says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Of his harvest. Israel did not make themselves holy. They didn't whip themselves into shape. They didn't pursue God, and God decided to give them a chance in response of their pursuit of him. No, God pursued them. Do you remember in Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 7, it says this, for you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord, listen to this, the Lord has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord has chosen you. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery. You see, God had chosen them apart from anything that was um, deserved by them. He had chosen them freely. Israel was a holy people and set aside for the Lord because God had chosen them. He had his heart set on them, not because of something they had done, but simply because he loved them and he chose them. It's a little bit of circular reasoning, right? Why do you, why do you love us? I love you. He just says, I love you. He had chosen them. Israel was holy because God had made them holy. And in their youth, in response to God's love, by choosing them in this way, Israel had looked to God and seen the love that he had for them, and they were amazed by it. Here in Jeremiah, their love for God is described um, like this, love as a bride. Think about the love that, has, that um, a bride has for their new husband. Um, it's wedding season, so maybe you've been to a wedding recently. Um, there's something about the way a new bride looks at their husband, right? And the way the husband looks at their new bride. Um, sometimes you just can't take your eyes off of them because it's 
Um, it's so attractive. And, and that's the picture that God offers here. The bride Israel sees the love that God showed to them by choosing them, making them promises as a nation, and they themselves responded with love. Also, think about this again in the context of a marriage. When a bride looks to her husband with this kind of love, there's a dedication that they have between each other, a covenant, a loyalty that they've given to each other. It's mutual. It says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. This is tr- that's true loyalty, no matter what comes. Um, and it's the loyalty that God has towards his people. And in the case of the relationship between God and Israel, Israel had a dedication and loyalty to God because they had seen his love. They had seen his choosing. They had seen how he had worked miracles in their lives. Um, And they did not deserve it um, because they didn't deserve it. And the truth is the case for some of us, brothers and sisters, God has looked on us. Um, There wasn't anything in us that caused him to choose us to be his children. Rather, he chose us simply because he looked on us and he loved us in the same way. And he did this so that we would be holy, so that we would be dedicated and and love him. Let's not forget this connection here, that God has chosen us and he's loved us and he's pursued us so that we would be holy and chosen and set apart to God and not to live for the pleasures of this world. Um, I've heard heard it kind of put this way by a pastor named J.D. Greer. Um, He's a pastor out of North Carolina. Uh, Think about it for those of you who are married, if one day you came home to your spouse and you proudly announced that you had been 99% faithful to your spouse. Would your, would your spouse be happy about that? No, no. And 99%, that's a good grade in school, right? That's, that's like A-plus material. Um, but in the context of a marriage, it's unfaithfulness, it's adultery. And it's the same in the way that God looks to us. He, he demands total obedience, total submission to him. Um, it's God, he's not pleased with our half-hearted commitments to him, knowing in the back of our minds that there are other things that we would rather be doing, other things we'd rather be thinking about, other things we'd rather be pursuing, um, like we'd rather be worshiping something else, we'd rather give our time to something else. We must surrender our whole selves to him and him alone, and it's not a burden. It's not a burden. Remember 1 John Chapter 5, verse 3, it says this, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So that's one way we can know um, that we really are tuned into how God feels, that we we don't experience his commandments as a burden towards us. When we see God for who who he really is, his commands won't be a burden. We'll come to love him for who he is. We'll come to love doing his will because we see this God and we say, what else would I rather do but follow this God? And this is the God that Israel had come to know in their youth who who were loyal to God, but now they had walked away. So what would cause them to walk away from a God like this? What would cause them? Why would they forget a God like this? So let's keep reading. This brings me to my second point here this morning, and that's Israel forgets. Israel forgets. So what we read in verse 5 is that Israel went far from God, and they followed after worthless idols, and they became worthless themselves. They stopped asking, where is the Lord? It says that a couple times in this section, and it lists all the things that the Lord had done for them. He brought them out of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness and into the promised land. Israel, unlike God with the Israelites, had forgotten all the good that God had done for them. They had forgotten everything that God had done for them. 
And this is a pattern that we see for the Israelite people through the Old Testament, that they regularly forget all the good that God has done for them. And God had done so much good for them. As we already talked about, he had chosen them. Um, Verse 5 and 6 spells out that he had brought them out of slavery through the wilderness into a fertile land. He gave them victory over more powerful nations. But Israel had forgotten this. So what, what is up with that? What is up with that? If you really think about it, it can be hard to fathom that this nation that had seen all that God had done um, chose to disobey his commands as if they didn't even matter. Um, Recently, I was having uh, this kind of conversation with a friend. Um, He was expressing a desire just to be able to recall regularly all the ways that God had blessed him, the ways that God had provided for him, because oftentimes we experience those things and we easily forget the ways that God has brought us through. And um, I shared with him, I, it struck me that I don't normally think that way. I, I, I think I, I sometimes will go through something and I, I remember, I think, wow, God, God must have had his hand on this. And then I forget. I forget that it ever happened. And it seems to be human nature for us to do this sort of thing. Um, but it's so important for something for, for us to do. It's so important for us to remember God's goodness, especially in our personal situations. The reason that it's so important is not just so that we remember what God has done and then think something like, uh, well, now I've really got to, God's done so good for me, so I've got to do so much good for God. I've got to pay him back. No, it's, it's something like um, we see what he has done for us, and as C.S. Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis describes it, it's like a ray of the sun that points us back to the goodness of its source. We see the good that God has done in our lives and we follow the ray of that goodness up to the sun and that sun is God and we see the source of all goodness in our lives. That's how these situations are. We're called to look at these situations to remember God in this way. So allow yourself to think on the things that God has done for you. Um, You may estimate it as something small or something large but regardless, let it point you to the character of God. Let it point you to, to show you who he is, really. Um, how he's provided for you, how he's ordered your steps, how he's brought you out of impossible situations, how he's turned terrible, bitter, wicked situations into something sweet. Let these things point you to the God of all good things. Remember these things, for as we see with the Israelites, it's a dangerous thing to forget the goodness of God. Um, later on in this section, in verse 8, we see four groups of Israelite leaders described in their disobedience towards God. And I noticed this myself after um, I read about it in my, my study notes in my CSB study Bible. And it, it says this in, those verse, in that verse. It says, the priests quit asking, where is the Lord? The experts in the law no longer knew me, and the rulers rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and followed useless idols." Uh, Lest we be tempted that it was just the Jewish people and not the leaders that were falling into sin, here we clearly see um, their disobedience toward God and their respective responsibilities. We see, in fact, that the leaders had fallen into into disobedience into their respective responsibilities. The priests, they were meant to seek after the Lord, but they had stopped seeking after him. See where it says they had stopped asking, where is the Lord? The experts in the law, although they may have known what it said, they no longer personally knew the Lord. The rulers who were in place to uphold God's standards, they rebelled against God himself. And the prophets no longer prophesied by the Lord, but they prophesied by a pagan god, Baal, and and followed useless idols. 
So I think this is a principle we can all consider true. People will go where they are led and become who they follow. They'll go where they led and become who they follow. The text here states that in verse five, when talking about Israel's fathers, what fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me, followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves? Um, I've heard it stated this way. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. Israel began to follow after worthless gods and they themselves became worthless, meaning that their worth should have been found in God, but once they switched it to these other gods who were empty, they themselves had nothing. Um, People are made to follow something or someone. Even when we think of leaders in the church they aren't left to make their own way. They're, they're meant, the leaders in the church are meant to follow God, and as they follow God, they're able to effectively lead the church. Um, so we are all, people by nature are meant to follow something or someone. It's also why Christian elders and pastors and deacons are called to a higher standard in order to qualify to be a deacon or elder or pastor. We see that in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3. In James, in the New Testament, he talks about how teachers will be judged by a higher standard at judgment. Why, why is that? Why is that? You can, the, the way that these leaders live and teach directly affects those that are under them. Think practically about this with me for a moment when it comes to, say, your workplace. I'm sure you've all started a new job before. You go to your new job. They give you a trainer to teach you how to do all your respective tasks. You're kind of trying to learn the ropes. And something that naturally happens is, is you start to watch your manager or your team leader or that trainer, and you pay attention to how they treat others. You pay attention to the rules that they follow and don't follow. You, t- you, you follow how the culture is at work and you start to mimic it. You start to follow it. You start to enmesh into that culture. Um, you follow how they operate, how they treat others. Or maybe you've worked somewhere where the culture, it was toxic. People were selfish. Your boss was always harshly calling people out. Everyone hated working there. And maybe you start to think that this is just how life is. This is work. It's just a grind. And then you get another job, a better job, where everyone likes coming to work. Your boss is kind. People are fairly compensated. It's a healthy culture, whatever it is. And you look back on your old job and you say, wow, that, that boss had really created a, a really toxic culture there. Um, And either by what they were teaching or how they were behaving, they had created a toxic work environment. And it's the same in the church. It's why Christian leaders are called to a higher standard. People will naturally look to how a pastor lives, what sort of habits he has, or an elder or a deacon, or think about maybe your small group leader. People will look to those people. And a leader may do something while another Christian is watching, and that Christian might say, oh, I, I thought that was wrong to do. Well, if they're doing, that, doing it, that means I can do it too. But please don't misunderstand. Uh, what I'm not saying is that Christian leaders are called to be perfect. Of course, we know that nobody is perfect. Um, Christian leaders are, are sinful just as every other person is, and has, they have sin struggles. Um, and second, I'm not calling Christian leaders to some sort of fake religious holiness. I think that's really important to say. Um, Do you know what I'm talking about? The kind of holiness where you walk into the church, into your small group, into your friend of believers, and you feel like you've got to have your guard up. You feel like, 
I'm a leader, so I've got to have this all together. That's not what I'm calling us to. Um, Nobody has it all together. Christian leaders, just like all other people, they go through regular life struggles and sin. God knows that. He's aware of it. We're aware of it, um, and we should be aware of it. So that ends my second point, that Israel forgets. Israel forgets and where it led them to, their leaders as well. And, and this is gonna, we're gonna jump straight into the third point, which I believe this whole section of scripture has been drilling down into this point. So let's really dial, really dial in here. Um, I'm calling this one the heart of the matter. Um, this is where I believe that the crux of the matter of this section is. So in verse nine, it says this, therefore I will bring a case against you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will bring a case against your children's children, Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and take a look. Send someone to Keter and consider carefully. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever exchanged its gods? But they were not gods. Yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. Be appalled at this heavens. Be shocked and utterly desolated. This is the Lord's declaration. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. So as I already said, I believe this is the heart of what happened to Israel. Not only had they abandoned God, which would have been shocking enough for them to abandon this God um, that chose them, that had led them, that had loved them, but no, they exchanged him. They exchanged him as if what they were choosing to follow instead of God himself was better. They exchanged him. That word exchange is used twice in my translation in the CSB in verse 11. It says, has a nation ever exchanged its gods? Yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. In verse 10, Jeremiah tells them to go to Keter, go to the coast of Cyprus. Has a nation ever exchanged their gods like this? What's he saying? He's saying, go to the other nations. Go look. Has another nation ever exchanged their gods in this way? And so it's shocking. I I want to press this in here. Not only had they exchanged their gods, but they had exchanged the true and living God who had brought them out of slavery through wilderness, had blessed them, had given himself to them. And they gave him away for what? What did they give him away for? They gave him away for gods that weren't even gods. They gave him away for gods that were fake, that were not real. Verse 12 sums up what our response to this should be. It says, be appalled at this heavens, be shocked and utterly desolated. This is the Lord's declaration. There aren't words I can give to how shocking this is. But then in verse 13, God through Jeremiah paints a picture for us as to why this is shocking. Why this is shocking. He says, for, at the beginning of that that verse, meaning because, he's explaining why the heavens should be shocked at what Israel had done. So he's saying, be shocked because Quote, my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. I, I'm not a biblical scholar or historian, but my, my general understanding of what a cistern is, is it's a, like a dugout hole with like a, maybe a clay pot, and they would fill it up with water. And so you have this picture of a cracked cistern, and if it's cracked, it's not going to be able to hold any water. And that's what That's what God is saying that they have done for themselves. Um, This is the picture that he's painting. Pretend that you're walking through a desert. You don't have any food. You don't have any water. You're going to die of thirst if you don't get any water. You're going through a desert. 
Um, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this spring of water, this fountain shows up right in front of you. You stumble upon it. And at one moment, you were staring death in the face because you're in the desert with no water. And now there it is. You have water. And a few days later, you start to get thirsty again, just like every other day. And there's a fountain of water still going, still available right there, still available to you. And you start to think of you, to yourself, you know what? I think I could dig myself a nice cistern right here. I think I could store up some water for myself. It could be my water out here in the desert and I could be provided for. And so you get to work, you dig the hole, um, whatever it is you do to, to uh, put a cistern in place. And let's just pretend you dig it, you get your big clay pot, you put it in the hole, you put the top on and you think to yourself, this is great now, I'll never run out of water. I can always store it over here in my cistern. And maybe then it rains or something and after it's done, you go over and look. And what in the world, there's no water in there. And after further inspection, you realize there's this big crack at the bottom. And you realize it's not going to hold any water with that sort of crack. And you're dead set on this thing working. You go to work to fix that crack. Maybe you grab some sand and try and patch it up. Whatever you do, um, they don't have flex seal back then, so you, don't, you can't fix it up with that. And no matter what you do, that thing is not going to hold any water. Can we agree to that? It's not going to hold any water. And even if it did... Even if it did hold water, the never-ending fountain is right there. Why abandon it? On top of that, why try to trade it out for something that can't even hold any water? This is what God is saying that Israel is doing. They have the source of life right in front of them, and yet they, they turn their backs and they start to create their own means of satisfaction. God is saying when we abandon him, when we turn from him, that's what we're doing he is, God is living water. What do you do with water? What do you do with water? You drink it. That's it. You just drink. You drink of him. You be satisfied in him. In the New Testament, Jesus is referred to, and he refers to himself as living water. Remember in the story of the woman at the well, he's living water. We often talk in the church about having faith, about believing in God, about believing in Jesus what does it mean? What does that mean practically for us? Does it just mean affirming these facts about who Jesus is? Like, yes, he's the son of God. Yes, he died for my sins. In James, it says that the demons believe and they shudder. So we know that's not it. This is believing. This is a picture of what it means to believe in Jesus, to drink of him, to be satisfied in him in all that he is for you, in all of his promises, in his death on the cross, and his raising from the dead, and everything that he's provided to us by the gospel. Israel was looking around to these other gods, these idols that they, um, they or others had created to, to give them what they wanted in life, to give them satisfaction, but they could never fulfill what they had promised to give. They could never fulfill what they had promised to give. Now, uh, we modern people, we look at this, and it can be difficult sometimes because we look at it, and we, and we don't have gods like that. We don't have these carved images. In some places of the world, they might, but we modern people in America, we don't deal with that, right? We're scientific, we, uh, so, but we do have other idols. We do have other idols. Think about it. Your career, money, school, family, reputation, romance. We chase after these things, and these things I named aren't bad things, right? Um, but when we look to them to satisfy us instead of God, we are idolizing those things. That's what it means to idolize them. 
We're placing them above God. We're giving our loyalty. Remember, Israel was loyal to God. We're giving our loyalty and our dedication to those things, our time to those things instead of God. So the question is, and I want, I want us to take a moment to reflect here, where does my loyalty lie? Would you take a moment this morning to, to, to think on that? Where does my loyalty lie? Where does my dedication lie? Where does my submission lie? And better yet, even a better question to ask is, where is my greatest joy? Where is my greatest satisfaction? Do I find God and the things of God satisfying his word, his goodness, his promises, the way, remember the, the ways he's provided for me? Do I find him worth giving my life for? Is it, or is it convenient for me to come to church or to read my Bible sometimes or to pray sometimes and to feel like I'm a good Christian? And of course, those are great things, but look at your heart this morning. What do you love? It's a marker of where your heart is. What do you love and what could you not live without? For some of us, you can look at your lives and, and say, you know what, and here we are, we're wrapping up here. You can look at your lives and you can say, you know what, I'm not perfect. But yes, I look at my life and I can say, yes, I love him. I'm satisfied in him. Um, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I, I'm still sinful, but I, I lean into him because of how good he is. Um, and I would just encourage you to keep going, keep, remember, keep drinking of him. Um, it's how we can, it's not only how we become Christians, it's how we continue in our walk as Christians. And some of us, probably most of us here are Christians. You would say, yes, I'm a Christian, but we must, we must not be tempted to think that, yes, I've got this whole Christianity thing down. I've got it figured out. I'm religious enough. No, look at your heart this morning. Look at your heart this morning. Do you know him? Do you love him? Are you loyal to him? Where is your spring of joy? Is it in other things? It is, in, is it in your family? Is it in your career? Is it in um, your reputation or seeking romance? Um, is it in the Lord? Maybe there are some here this morning, maybe there may be some that have never believed in Jesus and you've been following after the idols of this world. I think the answer, whether you're a Christian who has wandered away or you're not a Christian at all, this is what it looks like to turn to Christ this morning. First, we must recognize our sin. One, recognize. And it says this in uh, Jeremiah chapter two nineteen. it says this, recognize how evil and bitter it is for you to abandon the Lord your God, and to have no fear of me. First, we must simply recognize and agree with God that, yes, I have abandoned you. I've given my life over to these worthless things. Simply recognize it. And second, we must believe in the Lord. Remember, what does it mean to believe? To believe simply means to agree. Does it, well, does it mean to just agree with some historical facts about Jesus? No, no. No, the question is this, have you tasted living water? Have you tasted living water? This is what it means to believe in him and to have faith in him, to taste and, to, you remember that verse? To taste and to see that the Lord is good. To taste and to see that the Lord is good. Do you see that this morning? I hope you do, I pray you do. And let's say you, you don't know where to start this morning. You might look at your life and be like, I'm not, sh I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I do that. Um, I feel like I'm doing well, but I'm not sure. A great question, a great place to start is just to ask the Lord, to ask the Lord. Um, remember in this section, a couple of times it says that the Israelites and the priests, they had stopped asking, 
where is the Lord? They had stopped asking that question. Would you ask him that question this morning? Would you simply ask him that question, God, where are you in this? Can you show me where I am in this? Don't be discouraged. That's a, don't be discouraged by that question. That is a wonderful question to ask because God desires to, sh- he doesn't want any confusion. He wants you to have clarity. He wants you to know his love and his grace towards you. So would you ask him that question this morning? Lord, where are you? And if you do, he promises that if you seek him, you will find him. You will find him. So let us pray. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would please use this passage of scripture to please lead us in obedience towards you. First, to see that you are the living water, to see that you have given us and provided every way of salvation and of sanctification. Would you help us just to seek you this morning? To ask that question, if we, if we are confused, if we haven't sensed your presence and your spirit, Lord, would you help us to ask that question, where are you? And if we have been in sin, to recognize that that's where we are, to simply recognize it and then turn our hearts to you and to drink living water. Help us this morning, we pray this in Jesus' name.